does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Indianapolis Colts football is on the air. Welcome, everybody, to Everbank Stadium. It's week six. It's the Colts and the Jaguars. First and goal for the Jaguars. They trail the Colts three to nothing. ETN in the motion to the right side. As Lawrence goes out of the gun, they feed it to ETN, hammering into the end zone, and he scores. Minshew takes a snap, backs the throw, play action. Has time in the pocket. Now he is sacked. Ball is out. It rolls on the turf around the 23-yard line, and the Jaguars have it. ETN on a wildcat, direct snap to him, taking off right edge. He's at the 10, he's at the 5, and he's going to score. That is a 22-yard direct snap to Travis ETN from the wildcat spot. Colts have already turned it over once in this game. Minshew to pass. He's going to fire up field. This time, it is picked off. The Jaguars have it at the 20, the 25-yard line. Andre Sisko inside the 30-yard line. Empty set for Lawrence out of the gun. Again, he's going to pass looking left. Hitches, fires downfield, hits the man at the five. He's in the end zone. That's a touchdown. Christian Kirk, the Colts killer. Play action, Minshew again to throw. Fires it downfield. It's high, and it's picked off in the back end. Returned by the Jaguars coming near side in plus territory. This time it's Rayshon Jenkins. Third and goal at the 10-yard line. Lawrence out of the gun. Three receivers to the right, backs to throw. Plants has all day. Checks it down right side to a wide open tight end who backpedals his way across the goal line for a touchdown. And that's Brenton Strange, the rookie out of Penn State. Minshew going to pass on fourth down and goal. Fires it left side into the end zone. Josh Downs, touchdown! Josh Downs, his first career receiving score comes from Gardner Minshew. And it's now 31-12 in the fourth quarter. Shotgun snap for the quarterback. Quick hitches, throws up field, picked off by the Colts. Here we go. Juju Brents, his first career interception. They're going to motion Isaiah McKenzie in the backfield to the left of Minshew out of the gun. Takes a snap. Minshew, here comes the blitz. Throws off his back foot into the end zone. And he throws it up, and it's picked off. And he threw it up for Darius Williams. Second down and three at the three-yard line. Goal-to-go situation for the Colts. And Zach Moss driving across the goal line from three yards out. Touchdown. Final score here in Jacksonville on week number six. It'll be the Jacksonville Jaguars 37 and the Indianapolis Colts 20. Jimmy Cook, did you happen to take a road trip anywhere this weekend? No, no road trips anywhere for me, Jake. How about you? Uh, I did not. I was here. Enjoyed the beautiful weather. Eddie Garrison, did you happen to take a road trip this weekend anywhere? I did not. If you took a road trip, and we know because of the trusty folks at AAA, and I absolutely love AAA, the fact that AAA is always there for you roadside, which is always needed. But what do we know and what have I said for quite some time? Backup quarterbacks are like donut tires. Bingo. On a road trip, something happens. They are... A donut tire is really good to get you a couple of exits or to get you to the first place you can arrive to get a new tire put on. But if you try to go long form on the donut tire, eventually you find out why it's not your permanent tire. I think Gardner Minshew, and I have said all along, I think he's probably the best backup quarterback in the league. But eventually, the more you go to that well, the more that the the odds increase that that tire is going to bubble a little bit. I don't want to 
be correct about this, and I may well be wrong. But I remember saying after I think it was the second time that we had seen Gardner Minshew win a game for the Colts, maybe the third, that I felt like it's like when you play roulette at the roulette wheel and you've hit like three times in a row and you're like, okay, I've got to know that like eventually my luck's going to run out here. I'm not saying it's total disastrous and Gardner Minshew's a complete disaster, but I felt like maybe the Colts, if there was any chance that they were going to flip him into getting a pick or two, and yeah, it probably would have been like a fifth rounder to some team that needed a quarterback that maybe you explored doing that while his stock was at its highest. Yesterday, kind of the double whammy. You have the news beforehand that Shane Steichen had alluded to. Ian Rappaport is going to get credit for that, but I mean, Shane Steichen had basically said this during the course of the week. I don't think it was any major surprise that the Colts are still exploring the possibility that Anthony Richardson could go into a surgery that would end his season. That is still on the table. And I think a lot of people feel like that is actually probably what's going to end up happening. And in that scenario, your season's done. Minshew might get you into the wild card just based on the kind of the division. But especially after yesterday's loss, if you don't have Richardson, then you're already turning towards next year. So in that case, maybe they should have flipped Gardner Minshew when his stock was his highest before the tires started bubbling a little bit. But yesterday, not a great one in Jacksonville. Colts now essentially a full game back. Well, actually, game and a half back because Jacksonville's got the sweep on them. So the AFC South, Jacksonville does look like they're starting to get a little more of a, a firm hold on the division itself. And I thought Jimmy Cook, the thing in that game that was interesting to me was the fact that literally every time you looked up, there was a turnover or a sack or a rush. They couldn't get the running game going. They they He threw 55 passes. Alec Pierce actually showed some life. Then he got hurt. Pittman had a few nice catches. But there wasn't anything about the game to get you overly excited or optimistic. And yet, late in the game, they you felt like they were still kind of in it, right? I mean, you're looking at it and you're like, it feels like they're down 28 points. And you're like, you know, maybe if something happens here, I mean, they, they should have lost that game by, honestly, 30 points, right? But yeah. a loss is a loss. Yeah, I mean, after the, what, second interception, the third interception, I'd, I'd seen enough on the Minshew train. The Jaguars were pretty much able to take away anything that Colts wanted to do from a running game standpoint, just due to the fact that by the time they built their lead and where the Colts' snap distribution is between Moss and Taylor, they had no choice pretty much but to throw the ball. And a lot of errant throws for Minshew. Give credit to the Jaguars. We warned you about this going into the game, about the defensive front of the Jaguars, of guys like Josh Allen that are able to make game-wrecking plays, make life tough on quarterbacks. And, and Jake, to your point, I mean – what I have summarized as Gardner Minshew, and to borrow off, I guess, a little bit or paraphrase your donut tire analogy, Gardner Minshew is the type of quarterback where he has a best if bench by date attached to him. Eventually, that's a very good way you're going it. to need to have your starter come back, your true face the franchise come back. But he can get you through what you need to get through at times. Didn't happen on Sunday against a very good Jaguars team. We said this last week, too. But there's going to be opportunities on the schedule where the competition is lesser, where Minshew will be able to shine, where this offense will be able to shine and grow. But the thought of the development of your rookie quarterback now being potentially off the table if he misses the rest of the year, and again, that's not been officially announced yet, but it's on the table, 
it changes the dynamic of what this season is, and it goes back to what we pointed to with Gardner Minshew to start the year. Is he good enough to at least allow you to get clear observations on what you have in the rest of your offense? Have you ever put money into a COD? No. Call of Duty? <laughs> sure. You probably have put a lot of money into Call of Duty, Eddie. Negative. Negative. <laughs> but if you put money... So so if somebody gives you five grand, okay? You can keep the five grand so that it's accessible now and you can you can spend it if need be. Or you can put it into a nine-month certificate of deposit at 3% interest. And after nine months, you've got yourself... You know, whatever, fifty one hundred fifty bucks. I'm throwing it off the top of my head. Sometimes you have to make the decision whether it's better to be patient and invest, or to have something that's immediately accessible to you to help you right now. Anthony Richardson is that's possibly what the Colts are looking at. If they feel if surgery is a more definitive recovery and improvement for his shoulder then that's that's your certificate of deposit you go ahead and you take the immediately known commodity and you invest it for nine months from now so that you have a better version of that five grand or you can spend it right now and it's still worth a lot but there's the chance that it's not going to be worth as much i it's not a difficult decision for me. If they wind up with all these opinions and they've sought out a number of them per different reports, if it says that the consensus being if you have surgery, the odds of him re-injuring this go down to a very minimal amount and it's better for his long-term future, then you do that's it. what you do. Yeah. But again, the what about this year? You know, I mean yeah. they, they they they're still 500 you know, I mean, we went down. It wasn't what we expected. We're going to bounce back all chips in. I, I missed, by the way, the Jim Mersey videos um, at the airplane after games. And I felt bad. It was cool. But, you know, I really kind of felt bad for You know who I really felt bad for in Jacksonville? Who's that? Karen, the housekeeper. I think her name was Karen, right? Did I get the name wrong? Uh, did you see the Jim Irsay video handing out money in the hotel? I don't know that I did. So, Jim Irsay was handing out money. I heard about it, but I didn't see the video. In the hotel yes, in Jacksonville. Yes, I heard about it, but I didn't see the video. Yes. And he gives, and it was very kind of him. I, I, in no way, shape, or form am I damning that at all. I mean, it would be a wonderful thing to be able to do that for people. Jim Irsay walked up to the housekeeper in the hotel with a camera rolling and posted the video of him giving her $10,000, a $10,000 tip. The only problem is now she's got to pay taxes on it. Yeah, that's true. I hope somebody lets her know that. The whole world now knows. The FBI, or the, the excuse me, the IRS now is aware that she just got $10,000 in cash. <laughs> Anything over six hundred, you got to report on federal taxes. So she better hold out $2,200 or something like that, <laughs> right? No state income tax in Florida. That's cool. But she's going to have to pay federal taxes on it, that poor lady. Just because of the video, right? So do you, do you imagine there's somebody standing by with like a W-9 or something just ready? I, <laughs> I mean, I, if I'm her, I'm like, listen, I, I don't mind you putting this on camera, but like, can you hide my face and change my name and call me, you know, Janet? 
Speaking of Janet, she's one of the few left on Three's Company. Saw that over the weekend. Man. Janet, Terry, Cindy, Larry. That's it. That's it. Suzanne Summers, man, one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Um, so yesterday, Colts game, that was the big game. It was kind of a blood day in the NFL, but I'll tell you what, some surprises. No undefeateds left, right? Correct. Everybody's down to one loss now, so at least. Would, would you say the bigger surprise was San Francisco losing or Philadelphia losing? That's a great question, Jake. Both had like just knee-jerk endings. I would say Philadelphia just because I, I as the game played out, I didn't anticipate Hurts turning the ball over once they got to midfield. And who really is going to take the Jets seriously, right? Yeah. I mean, I will say, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you look at what Robert Sala's defenses have been able to do this year against top-tier quarterbacks. They, he's done a great job defensively. They've, They've embarrassed him, Jimmy. They, they, I mean, I'm not kidding. They have. Like they, they have, they have made a number of top-tier quarterbacks with a defense we knew was good coming into the season look foolish. So I guess maybe the interception shouldn't surprise me that much. Uh, I didn't think that Moody was going to miss that kick for the 49ers. I will say that, but. I think what surprised me more was Jalen Hurts turning it over late when they were at midfield with pretty much the game in hand. Here's the thing. The San Francisco game has bigger implication here, though, and is a bigger talking point because uh, what that means is this. Cleveland can D it up, man. Yes. Cleveland's D is legit, mm-hmm. and you've got some nasty quarterback guy. I mean, obviously it doesn't matter with Richardson and his health because it's going to be Minshew that's the sacrificial lamb they send out there. Uh, Cleveland's not a great team, but they're a great defense. And Minshew's going to have, if you thought he was rushed in Jacksonville, <laughs> I mean, there are some guys yeah. coming after him for Cleveland. And that de- that defense won them the game yesterday. That and a missed kick. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be a difficult prospect for the Colts offense if they look anything like they did against Jacksonville. I will say I would also be licking my lips if I'm part of the Colts defense, however, because regardless of if it's Walker or if it's a return to uh, Deshaun Watson, I don't know what the Watson timeline is. So if somebody Deshaun Watson, it is possible, is going to be back this weekend. But again, they've not looked nearly as impressive as I think Browns fans and the league at large hope they would look offensively that is a correct statement. going into the year. So it, I think it has all the makings at this point of an ugly defensive-led matchup going into... Colts Browns a week from yesterday yeah that's a fair statement um you know it's tough and again coming off of that loss and knowing you know you you can bounce back I mean the schedule what's the schedule upcoming here it's pretty manageable right Browns Saints both at home but the funny thing about the NFL is how quickly you lose your confidence, right? Because you look at it a week ago and you're like, oh, they can Minshew Mania, baby. Sell the T-shirts. Let's go. And then they go out and they have one bad performance and it's like, they're never going to win another game. You know, I, but but it does feel you know, that Cleveland defense is – Cleveland's going to be in that game because of their defense. And, you know, the Colts yesterday – Obviously, they saw something defensively that they liked, or you know, in terms of matchups. But they they basically abandoned the run. I mean, fifty five times in the air. But I mean, you got Jonathan Taylor and Zach Moss. It just it felt like they just completely got away from part of what was. And, and I get it. I guess you know, Minshew is more known as a rhythm thrower, a rhythm passer, right? But doesn't it feel like? 
they just got away from what they have done best, which is run the, the football and keep it in their hands and in flow. Uh, Shane Steichen, perhaps that was just because of the flow of the game uh, and the way that they were trying to keep the game flowing. Uh, Shane Steichen on that from yesterday. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the flow dictate that, dictates that a little bit, you know, down to distance and how we're feeling and what I'm thinking in those situations. And obviously we came out throwing a little bit there early and, you know, got the three points, which we could have, you know, scored there on that first drive with the touchdown. Um, but again, you know, hats off to Jacksonville. Again, I mean, I think sometimes that happens where coaches just the arrows start going and you're in the flow of the game. It happens with us. I mean, how often does it happen where, you know, we get talking about something and then we get done and we go, you know what? We never mentioned blank today. We meant to get to that and we never did. It did feel like, though, throughout, there were some ugly runs by both Moss and Taylor. Whether you want to attribute that to the Jags' defense, whether you want to attribute it to lack of protection within running lanes from the Colts up front, I'm willing to hear out either, but... It didn't surprise me as that game went on the way Jacksonville was able to limit the Colts in 17 carries, just right around two and a half yards per, that they felt the need to abandon it with where the game was. I don't think they should have gone aggressively. I don't think they should have abandoned it as aggressively as they did, but it doesn't surprise me that game script kind of dictated their ability to probably play the game they wanted to with a more balanced overall offensive attack. Um, What else jumped out at you yesterday around the league? Um... The fact that even though it's a, a middling game and I thought it was going to be a very ugly game, Sunday Night Football delivered a bit because Brian Dable appears to <laughs> be a pretty talented coach and with ever, all the injuries they had up front on the offensive line, the fact they were able to limit the Bills the way they were. Eddie had pointed this out before he we went on air. I don't know if it says more about what the Bills actually are or the fact that the Giants are a scrappy 1-14, but that Sunday Night game kept me more captivated than I thought it would a week ago. When we talked about it, I told you it looks like Sunday night games are starting to go the way to Thursday night in that they're bad matchups. Was it a bad matchup on paper? Yes, but it was a very compelling game from start to finish. Uh, that stood out to me a ton. Yeah, it was um it just was one of the like what do I always say about those AFC East like NFC East Sunday night games when I was a kid? Just that the weather. What's the sound effect I always do? Good. Gah. Right? Ugh. You, you were right about Vikings-Bears, by the way. I didn't watch a second of it. I know it was 1913, but I'm not upset that I didn't watch a second of it. Didn't I, miss are, it. Are you the guy that was on your couch in Jeff City, Missouri, flipping the channels, and you're like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> there, was some, there was some red zone on for large portions of that afternoon. Also, another PBR down. I was about to say that. They hey. won in a different fashion hey. yesterday. Are the Fighting Motmans the best team in the NFL right now? I can make a case for it. Are the Detroit Lions, what world are we living in that the Detroit Lions <laughs> fire up Kiss, baby, fire up Kid Rock, fire up Bob Seeger. Kiss, I know, is actually from New York, but they have Detroit Rock City. I mean, come on. Fire up Motown. It's one of the best stories in the NFL. Did you say Detroit? I did. Okay. Why Not South Detroit, right? All right. That, we know South Detroit is actually Canada. Thank you, Eddie. I appreciate that. Do not fire up Journey. I did not mention that, right? <laughs> yeah, the Detroit Lions now. Kind of kind of sneaky and quiet. I mean, obviously yesterday, you know, they beat the Bucks, right? I mean, come on. Jets-Eagles like, was our Fox game in the area. So unless you had Sunday ticket or red zone, you didn't see much of the Lions taking care of business against the Buccaneers. A big show lined up today, by the way. Mike Chappell going to join us as he does each and every Monday. That's going to be in about 40 minutes. Uh, also today... 
it is a an anniversary in the world of sports. I guess in twofold. Uh, one, it was on this date when Dan Weldon was fatally injured in Las Vegas. That's not obviously an anniversary that we celebrate, but um, I was on the call. I was on the broadcast that day. I remember it very well, uh, 12 years ago, on October 16th of 2011. Uh, and Dan Weldon, I don't need to tell people here in Indianapolis, one of the great ambassadors for sports and just being um, a wonderful personality. The story that I always tell is um, I remember that day once the accident had happened, I was in, I was on the broadcast, I was in the pits. And so they had an all driver meeting in the media center. And that's where they informed the field that Weldon, that the injuries were fatal. And then they, and then uh, it was announced, Randy Bernard announced to the world that Dan Weldon had been lost. And they, they decided to do the five lap tribute. So I was walking out of the media center area from that meeting to go back out towards Pitt Road to continue to broadcast on the five-lap salute. It was essentially myself and Mike King. Mark James was up top. Um, Kevin Lee, Nick Yeoman were working with us. And I was walking out, and the thing that I always recall about Dan Weldon, which I thought was a great tribute to him in the worst of times, granted, uh, and in the worst of ways, but walking out to the pit road, as I was walking out there, there was a worker, just like a, a volunteer worker that checked credentials or whatever for pit road. And it was an elderly woman and she was sitting and she had her, she was looking down and she was like weeping as everybody was. I mean, cause they had announced on the PA that he had been fatally injured. And as I was walking out, she looked up at me just because I happened to be the, the human being closest to her and looked up at me with incredulous shock and despair on her face and said, he was the one person who said hi to me this morning. And I've never forgotten that. And I just thought it, that is the classic example of Dan Weldon. But that was uh, on this date in 2011. But the other thing, I guess a more triumphant standpoint of it, the 1968 Olympics on October the 16th, which is today, 55 years ago today, uh, Probably most of you are like, what possible significance would the 1968 Olympic Games have today? The 1968 Olympics were in the middle of much of the civil rights movement. And in Mexico City in October of 1968, when the games were going on, on this date, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and another runner by the name of Peter Norman, who had won the silver medal, and Peter Norman was from Australia, they stood on the podium, and uh, John Carlos had won the bronze. Tommy Smith had won the gold. Peter Norman had won the silver. They stood on the podium with the one glove on and raised their fists in one of the most iconic images in Olympic history. That was 55 years ago today, and Dr. John Carlos will join us on the program at 2 o'clock to look back on all that went into that iconic moment. And then the other thing that I know people are wondering about so I listen. The Indiana Fighting Hoosiers. I, I was certain. I've never been more sure of anything in my life. And I apologize to those who bet the mortgage. Several people sent me texts saying that they bet the money line on Indiana, and I'm like, I know you're lying because there was no money line until like the the Fighting Hoosiers started to pull the rabbit out of the hat. So here's what happened. 
I went to bed Friday night, and I read when I went to bed Friday night that Tom Allen was still uh, kind of being coy on who his quarterback was going to be on Saturday. And I thought they got him right where they want him. There is nothing that says more about coaching brilliance than being like week six in going into the uh, uh, the number two team in the country in front of 105,000 and still tinkering with your quarterback. Like this is playing chess while everybody's playing checkers. And I knew right then, Indiana is going to stun the world. They're going to shock the world. I woke up about 12.15 on Saturday, turned on the television, Indiana's up 7 nothing. Indiana had had a drive where they got picked off. They had a chance to – I mean, they, they they could have had 14 right there early in the game, but they're up 7 nothing. The tweets are rolling in. The texts are rolling in. Nostradamus, genius. You could hear some faint snaps you could deep hear in it. the distance. You could hear, you could hear it. it. You could hear Eddie. And then I got up. I got something to eat. I took a shower, kind of getting figuring out what I'm going to do for the day, getting out the cobwebs. I come back midway through the probably third quarter. I turn the television back on to check the score. And all of a sudden, I sound like Mike Damone from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Woke up in a great mood. I woke up in a great mood, up 7 nothing. Before I know it, it's like 35-7, 42-7. Indiana's like, after the game, Tom Allen's like, we, we expected a quarterback to step up and none of them did. Michael Penix did that night. He's probably going to win the Heisman. Indiana was playing like quarterback, spin the bottle. Uh, it's disappointing. I thought for sure they were going to win. We'll always have that first quarter. Don Fisher will be joining us next, and we'll talk about that first quarter and old, the old glory of old IU. Okay, I, I'm not going to lie. This is a this is a true true confession of Jake Query. Midway through the first quarter in Ann Arbor, I did turn on and listened to the vast majority of the first half at home, the radio broadcast, because I was waiting to see if Don Fisher was going to tip <laughs> my genius. I'm not. I'm. I'm not kidding you. I thought, oh my gosh, they, they, they. Really, I'm like, he, he's going to say, my, he's going to say that this was predicted, this was called. Don and I'm not even trying to be flippant. Early on, I really did think it was going to happen. I really did think it was going to happen, Don. Well, it was fun while it lasted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it didn't last nearly long enough. And uh, without question, uh, Michigan just absolutely took over the game in the second quarter. Uh, And and the problem was that Indiana just made some mistakes that were so costly. Um, You know, the the possibility of a touchdown to to actually take a – 14 to 7 lead over Michigan uh, later on in the second quarter. That At that point, uh, the mistakes that were made at that juncture that just cost Indiana dramatically, and you could just feel everything start to crumble after that. And uh, unfortunately, uh, let's face it, Michigan is a really great football team, and they, are, they, they dominated Indiana the rest of the way. And the fact that Indiana, you know, went with a couple of different quarterbacks throughout the contest and went back and forth with them, that kind of thing. The, the continuity level that we saw there was very, well, obviously there wasn't much. And that didn't help things either. But the truth is, they were they were going to try two quarterbacks the entire – Rod Carey just told us today at the press conference that 
the plan all along was to go with both guys to see which one would step up. And uh, honestly, nobody really separated themselves from the others. So at this point, we're still in that uh, position where I think they're going to continue to use two. And there may be a third guy that's involved here, too, because Dexter Williams uh, was dressed for the ball game. Uh, obviously, he's the guy that we talked about last year coming in and playing so well until he got hurt in the Purdue ball game. Um, he may be a factor down the road as well. So we'll just have to wait and see on that. But this team has got a lot of work to do here this week to get ready for a Rutgers team that came back and from a 24-6 deficit, won the ball game against Michigan State. And honestly, if Indiana doesn't get its act together, uh, it's going to be a long rest of the season. Don, I, I, I don't want to pile on here, but I guess it's going to sound like I'm doing that. You know, the old saying in, in football – to paraphrase it is you know if you have if you're going with two quarterbacks you have none um there's a lot of debate about whether or not multiple quarterback system is the way to go etc is it too harsh of me if i say look we're, we're too far into a year here to be still experimenting or figuring out what we're doing in terms of the quarterback you got to pick one and go with it am i being too harsh i don't know that that's harsh i mean that's that's the, the reality is that right now we don't have one uh, you know, we, we haven't gone. We, we went with Taven initially after the first two ball games, um, but as soon as things start to break down and a few mistakes are made, all of a sudden you feel like uh, maybe we got to go the other way. And and I don't I don't know that that's the way to go. I'm not saying that the coaching uh, in this situation is wrong. I'm simply saying that it hasn't worked thus far, and without question, we haven't seen either one of these guys really separate themselves from the other, and it just brings up the prospect that maybe this is a scenario we're going to have to deal with the entire year. But again, Dexter Williams becomes the third guy in this picture, too, and if he is actually physically ready to go and he was on the available uh, but questionable list this past weekend, he was dressed for the game, I think they didn't put him in there simply because of who they were playing. They didn't want to have something like that happen again very quickly or have any kind of an injury or even give him a scenario where he felt uncomfortable going into the contest. So now another week of preparation before the Rutgers game this Saturday. We may see a third guy in the mix for a quarterback position. Voice the Hoosiers, Don Fisher is our guest. Don, I, I know this is off the beaten path in terms of IU talk, but I just want to get your perspective on it. The Michael Penix Jr. era was marred by his inability to stay healthy and a number of different injuries that limited him to action when he was an IU quarterback. Are, are you surprised to see the ascension that he's had to the point of consecutive years in Heisman consideration? I'm not surprised in the sense of uh, of Michael's abilities because there's no question when he was when he was at his best he was fantastic uh, for Indiana and obviously the his last year here he was coming off that second knee surgery uh, he wasn't confident I, I, people have read the stories about the fact that uh, on Saturday game days in the morning he would He'd be laying on his floor in his in his uh, dormitory or wherever he was staying, uh, crying and praying that he wouldn't get hurt again. Well, if that's your mindset going into a football game, you're already beaten. Uh, and without question, he had a horrible year uh, in 2021. And from that point forward, uh, 
you know, what has he got with Kalen DeBoer again in 22 and now 23? He's been unbelievable. And I'm, I'm glad for him because he's overcome whatever phobias he was dealing with uh, in his junior year at Indiana, essentially. Uh, so I'm really happy for him in that context. Uh, I just wish he was still throwing it for Indiana at this point because uh, he would have been special in that regard had he been able to. But here's the thing. Uh, I think he is has more trust in Kalen DeBoer than anybody that was at Indiana at the time. And I know Nick Sheridan is out there supposedly as the quarterback coach. But it's Kalen DeBoer who made Michael Penix what he is. There's no question in my mind about that. And uh, Michael Penix right now is playing well enough to become the Heisman Trophy winner. And uh, I give him all the credit in the world for what he's been able to do since he transferred. I'll tell you, Don, he might be the Heisman front runner right now because Caleb Williams, you know, really struggled at Notre Dame. And that, you know, these things are week to week, I realize. But for right now, it seems like Penix is, is kind of the, the guy that, that put himself up a little bit because of the way he rallied against Oregon at the end of that game. Uh, switching gears real quick, Don, just because, let's face it, part of the tradition of Indiana football is to get then excited about Indiana recruiting and basketball. Um, big five-star recruit Liam McNeely, uh, McNeely commits yesterday. Don, I will be the first to admit, I don't – I'm always kind of a cynic about recruiting just because it's it's always, I think, a crapshoot. You know, I mean, Calvert Chaney's one of the greatest players in school history, was not a huge recruit. Same with A.J. Guyton. There are other guys we've seen that – came in but you'd rather have big name than not I realize that uh Mike Woodson it does seem as though has now the answers the, the question's been answered right Don he can go into homes and get kids to come to Indiana I think that's right I, I don't think there's much question about it obviously you got two last year from Bud Academy and both uh, highly recruited guys Malik Radu of course still with Indiana and of course Jalen Huchafino was a one and done um, there's no question he could recruit, and he's been able to do it here in the early part of 2000, well, for the 2024 class. Uh, it looks like there's a possibility of getting two or maybe maybe two more guys uh, out of this particular class that are highly regarded guys as well. Uh, the Queen kid down at Montverde Academy is another guy that's a teammate of Liam McNeely's, and, and there's talk that... Uh, both, uh, that McNeely is now recruiting heavily for Indiana and trying to get Queen to come, uh, who's a big guy, 6'10", physical player uh, from Montford Academy, and then a, a really good point guard in Boogie Fawn, uh, who is out in New York. So uh, and he, I guess McNeely supposedly is recruiting both those guys hard to come to Indiana. So at any rate, it, and that's always a factor too. I mean, the McNeely kid is a top 15 player. There's no question about that. He's very talented, great shooter. Indiana needs that in the worst way. Um, and if he can get these other guys to come, well, it's just uh, another feather in Mike Woodson's cap for his recruiting process. Don, here's a dumb question. You know, obviously, I know that Jalen Hood Shafino, who was a wonderful player, came from the same academy, the Montverde Academy. Does does Indiana have? and this may be a glaringly obvious answer, does Indiana have like a connection with someone on staff there, or was it simply a matter of getting one of their key players like a Hood Shafino and then kind of getting word out that Indiana was a place that worked out for him? I think, you know, maybe there's both. I, I really could not answer the question about whether there's a connection there, but obviously Mike Woodson has seen these players at Montford Academy in his recruiting process. He's 
seen these guys and maybe he starts recruiting them as soon as he sees them and thinks that they're the guy that can fit the bill for Indiana. I, I can't answer that question. I've never really asked Mike. Uh, maybe on our first talk show this year I will do so. But, but um, there's little doubt that Indiana has really recruited that program hard. And I think their head coach obviously has a good feel for what Indiana brings to the table in that, in that area. I don't think that that hurts Indiana in any way, shape, or form. Don Fisher was on the call against Michigan over the weekend with the Hoosiers losing to the Wolverines. It's Rutgers this Saturday, right, Don? It is Rutgers this Saturday, a team that's 5-2 and two on the year. Uh, for whatever reason, Rutgers seems to have had Indiana's number of late. Um, and they're a program under Greg Schiano who's made a lot of progress with what they were struggling with about four years ago. All of a sudden, they're starting to win now. And I don't think they're great offensively, but they are certainly really good defensively. They're only allowing about 280 yards a game, uh, both run and pass yards in a ball game at this point in the season. Um, I- I'm impressed with what Shiano's been able to do. This is a winnable game, in my opinion, for Indiana, but they're going to have to play some of their best football to get it done. And our, arguably, we haven't seen well, That's not even arguable. We have not seen that in the last two two ball games that they played against Maryland and Michigan. And they've somehow got to find a way to return to the confident level they were playing with defensively if Indiana's going to have a chance in this game. Game will kick off at noon on Saturday. You can hear it on 93 WIBC. My annual weekend road trip with my buddy Mike Byron is this weekend, Don. So uh, you'll carry us for about 210 miles or so. So make it, make it a good call with Rutgers. We'll be listening the whole time. I hope I can make it a good call. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, you've done a few of them over the course of the year, so I'm pretty confident in that regard. Let's just hope Indiana makes it a good game worth calling. Don, we appreciate the time as always. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Don Fisher, the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers on the hotline. Um, Again, I really thought, man, I thought they were going to stun the world. thought they were going to shock the world and beat Michigan. I got super excited when they were up 7-0 and then, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was a it was a buzzy feeling for a second. Me and Eddie both texted you or contacted you in some way in regards to the early goings there. You're right, Jake. They had an opportunity to take a 14-0 lead for turning over inside the 10. But, yeah, that went about, I think, how most people expected it would as Michigan overpowering them. And now you turn to the rest of the schedule, and it's like the, the, the race to six is probably over. I mean, Rutgers, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan State, and Purdue – are your last hopefuls and you need to win out to have a shot at a bowl game that's moving away from the road contest against Penn State on the 28th. So it doesn't look great. And Jake, I've always been with you. Two quarterbacks are not the way to go. If you're having to scramble, particularly at this point in the season, still trying to figure out which quarterback can step up, it, it, it might not be the year for good quarterback play at IU. Jimmy, it is. And Taven Jackson's very young, so I'm not going right, to fully write him off, but it, not a great year at quarterback in Indiana. I, I, I'm not. Listen, I have all the respect in the world for Don Fisher, and I, I respect and appreciate his candor. Sure. That said, he is not only earned the right, but just professionally speaking, he's the voice of Indiana. I'm not going to put him in the position to like completely condemn oh, things, yeah. right? No, of course not. But I will say, I know that he is a wonderful human being, and I know that he is a... a a fabulous father-like figure for players and that that is important but 
And I'm not saying it because Indiana got blown out in a game that I guaranteed they were going to win. I think most people knew I was probably being a little bit flippant there, but um, it is time. It is time. Indiana needs to make a coaching change. And for people that say, Indiana, it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be, it's always going to be the same thing down there because Indiana's just, they don't, they're not committed towards the finances of Indiana football. They're just not committed to it. They're not, Indiana's not going to pay for IU. Well, listen, Indiana's in the situation they're in because of their commitment financially to Tom Allen. They owe him a $20 million buyout. At the time that they extended him, he was the ninth highest paid coach in college football. And had the fourth, I think at the time, the fourth highest buyout in the country. I'm sorry, but with that comes expectation. And with that expectation comes requirement of fulfilling and showing some progress. They look totally inept. They look totally unprepared. They look totally, from a from a playing standpoint, they look completely uninvested. From a scheme standpoint, they look completely clueless. And from a roster standpoint, they look like a coaching staff that has been constantly turned over because of things excluding X's and O's by the head coach who has rearranged every chair on the deck of the Titanic and the water now is up to and above his navel. Sorry. I don't disagree with you on the any of that. time has come. I don't disagree with you on any of that, but regrettably, IU's made their bed. Like, it, they, they, they would have to swallow a $20 million I, I pill to make I know, that change, and I, I, I just don't think they're going to do it. I, I don't disagree, and that's and that's the shame, because people actually go down and waste their Saturdays thinking that things are going to change when they tailgate down there and then go play Sink the yeah. Biz. Uh, at least the AMFs are good. Chris Phillips just sent me this. Hey, Jake, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the reason sometimes you don't get to something you want to talk about is because you digress about something you see in the moment. Uh, I, I don't know about that. By the way, I just saw this from Ben. Hey, guys, uh, the top 10 arena is from Andy Katz. So he wanted me to opine on that. Uh, Andy Katz has Allen Fieldhouse number one, Cameron Indoor number two, Mackey number three, Pauley Pavilion at UCLA number four, the Palestra number five, Hinkle number six, Breslin Center seven, Dean Dome eight, uh, Assembly Hall nine, and Hilton Coliseum at Iowa State, number ten. I, pretty fair list. I would put. I've not been to the Breslin Center, admittedly, but I think just based on years and history, Assembly Hall would be a little bit higher. I would have thought so. Uh, Pauley Pavilion. I'm going to slightly disagree with. I've been to it. Uh, obviously, tons of history, so that's hard to argue. But it's kind of stale overall. Like it doesn't have the intimate feel that a Hinkle or a Cameron has. Allen Fieldhouse, number one. Pretty hard to argue. Yeah, I'm not going to. Put up a fight against Except that. Except for you're sitting on a bench everywhere, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I've been inside Breslin, but I haven't been there for a game. I will say it's like a it's like a fishbowl, and you're just kind of like Mackey, isn't it? sitting on top of it, like the court, right? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a great it's a great environment. No exactly doubt like Mackey no doubt in that about. regard. Yeah. The Palestra is hard to argue. The Palestra and Hinkle. The Palestra is a miniature Hinkle. They're both super cool. The one at St. Mary's is also really cool. It's a lot like the Palestra. Mike Chapel's next. We are one hour into the show. Coming up one hour from now, Olympic hero from the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City and civil rights activist for the controversy at the time of raising his fist with the glove, Dr. John Carlos. That happened 55 years ago today. He will join us one hour from right now on the show to take a look back not only at everything that went into that moment in 1968, but where things have gone for him since then and for all of us as a country. That conversation one hour from right now. But right now, the most pressing issue is that of the Colts and yesterday's loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Joining us 
to talk about that and more. Mike Chappell from CBS4 and Fox 59, the dean of coverage who has covered each and every season for the Colts since they came from Baltimore. Uh, Mike will get the big elephant in the room out of the way right now, and that is I don't think yesterday that it was anything new to those who covered the team that it is still on the table of an Anthony Richardson season-ending surgery. But would you agree that perhaps yesterday's game, and then maybe if you add one more like that in the Gardner Minshew um, next three or four weeks, might be a factor in, you know what, they're better off just going ahead and getting that done and securing the long term for Anthony Richardson and kind of punting on the year? Or is that is that a little too harsh? Maybe a little too harsh. I, I don't think yesterday impacts anything. Did anybody expect him to win down there? I mean, really? You know, it's, he's the seventh quarterback to lose down there in the last, you know, since they won. So I, I, I really don't think, and maybe, maybe I'm the one that's way off base. I just don't know that that impacts. This is about Anthony Richardson. What's best for him going forward? And, and if getting him back for the last six weeks is, is really, I mean, and he's back healthy and, and his shoulders is good, then he comes back because. I don't want to go into next year with, oh, by the way, this quarterback has played now, you know, he started what, I guess it would be 16 games as opposed to 13 games. So I, I guess one that he started for this year, but he, he needs to play. He needs reps. He needs to see everything he can see. And if that comes at the expense of not making the playoffs or whatever, sort of so be it. I mean, I mean but so I, I don't know. I, I still personally from the, Things I've seen from people I've talked to, I, I think we've seen the last of Anthony Richardson. I just do. I think that you know, we, we get Shane Steichen today at after two o'clock. Does he get, does he you know move the needle? I don't know. You know, there's no. We all want things now, but with Richardson being an IR, they really don't need to give us much advancement as far as his, his status for another couple of weeks. Uh, so, so there's no real hurry on it. And I assume that the, the sooner you get surgery, the sooner the rehab starts. But I'm not sure two or three weeks are going to matter because if he has surgery, he's done, and then he's got the entire offseason to heal. So I don't know. I, I, I know what you're saying. But but I, I think Richardson is sort of a, a separate issue in, in his own. And I don't know that how they play record-wise will – impact it maybe i'm wrong but i don't think so well i the thing that i said earlier mike to me anthony richardson's like if if you had five thousand dollars in cash there are things you can do with that right now or you know that you can put it into a certificate of deposit and wait nine months on it and then suddenly it's 5200 bucks on interest both of them are going to help you out, but the latter one takes more discipline and more more long-term vision, but it might be the better play. And at some point, they may have to determine that just on his health standpoint, record of team regardless, right? Like if Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I don't rush him out there. I don't say, boy, you know, he's, he's 80%, and, you know, the team is whatever they are, 500. Maybe he can get us over the hump. I don't do that. Uh, to, to me, the only way he comes back without surgery is that, the rest, you know, six weeks that we've talked about, you know, the four weeks and then the leaving home from, from Germany and then you get to buy. No, the only way I bring him back without surgery is if he's, if he's really, really ready to go. 
not the, yeah, there's still a little bit of a hitch, it's still a little pain in my throat, then you don't do it. That, that's where I don't mess up my investment. But if by some chance that, you know, he, and he's not simply going to listen to the team. I mean, he's had, from what we've read, four or five or six second opinions, which if I'm a player and that's my, my meal ticket, I'm doing it too. You know, I'm going to get to talk to as many people as I can. So, yeah, I, I, to me it all depends on whether he can come back without surgery, and if so, then he does. But if there's any hesitation on anybody's part, then you don't do it. I just think that, you know, we'll see what, again, maybe the coach advances today, maybe not. But but I, I, I just, in my, I just it just feels like surgery is going to happen. There's so much noise out there. And, you know, last week – the coach didn't exactly shut that down. And I, th- I thought the one thing that was telling from Shane Steichen, and I don't know that he meant it at all, but he really didn't give any any reason, any glimmer of hope that he was returning. I asked once, Steve Holder asked once, and somebody else did about, you know, is is, is there a chance he plays this year? Well, well, we'll let the doctors decide. And is there, a, is there a chance he doesn't play this year? Well, we'll let the docs decide. And the surgery, he, you know, he left the door open. So I understand not wanting to feed the fan base false hope, but maybe you could have said, Hey, we all hope he's back this year, but we'll see. We didn't get that. Maybe that's reading too much into it. Or maybe that's what the, 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 the team knowing, having a good idea what's going to happen, but waiting a week or two to see, because again, I don't know what another one, a week or two is going to matter as far as if he has surgery, he's done. So what's another week or two going to matter on his rehab? Yeah, I would hope nothing. You know, if, if in in such a short time where you're going to have a long time to heal, so we'll see. I, again, I've just talked myself into this is Minshew's team for the rest of the year, and we'll see where he takes them. Mike Chapel of Fox 59 and CBS Four is our guest. Mike, I know there's no alternative. It's Minshew. They're not going to go out and find another quarterback. But going into the season, the thought was if something happens to Richardson or if they decide Minshew's the starter day one, well, at least there is reason to think the wide receivers, the rest of the offense, can still get a measuring stick of how their development is going. Yesterday, from my vantage point, was the first time that faltered for me. The idea that Gardner Minshew is capable of running an efficient offense to the point that you could still get clear observations for what you have at other positions. Did it falter at all for you yesterday, or is it more just an overreaction to Jacksonville being the better team? Well, Jacksonville is the better team. Uh, and again, it's it's some of the losses down there are inexplicable. So I, I, I don't – overreaction is, again, I say, what do you expect? Now, I expected, <laughs> I expected a more competitive team than we saw – but boy, you can't have your quarterback turn the ball over four times. You know that that was his first three interception game of his career. Uh, the one thing that you could always depend on with Gardner Minshew is is ball security and and not putting his team in bad situations. And he did time after time. And you just this team, few teams. Well, what was it Jalen Hurts threw three picks yesterday, and they got and the Eagles got beat. It's hard. It's so hard to win. When you, when you have those turnovers, I went back and looked, and they were what is it since ninety or since eighty four with four turnovers. They're now is it five and fifty four, you know, and and that's with Peyton Manning went through a lot of stretches where he had multiple turnovers and all that, and it's just hard. 
So he can't he can't be part of the problem. If he's part of the problem in a game, you're in real trouble, real trouble. And I thought I don't think the coach would really talk about it today. I thought they went into the game with the idea we can't run the ball. You know, we're not going to waste plays because we can't run the ball and we're not going to bat our heads against the wall trying. And and so they didn't. So they couldn't and they didn't. What the the, the first half, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was, now some of the run game, I thought, were those short passes, the moss over the middle, those sort of dump offs. And that's fine. But all that does is bring the defense up and it makes it harder to run. And, and, then, and then the dump offs don't work. You know, but but through three quarters, they, they they just they had like what was it halftime? It was thirty five plays, and they ran the ball eight times with the running backs, eight times with the two running backs. Right now, are are two of your better players. Uh, again, I just thought it was a case of you know, and Peyton Manning was always like, you know, I, I just hate to call bad plays when you know they're not going to work. You only get so many, and I just got the feeling. It's to me, it's not that the Colts abandoned the run. They never really brought the the run game with them, and so so it was sort of you know it, it doomed them from the start. Uh, and maybe it's just Jacksonville, and and we're going to see better things going forward. Although Cleveland's <laughs> their defense is really playing well, not so much offense, but so 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 this week is another game where the the quarterback can't be your problem. You know, there, there's going to be bad plays, and you just kind of suck it up and move on. Those interceptions were just awful. You know, he sailed a couple of them, and he threw the one short to, to, to Pittman. And, you know, the, the, again, this team already has limitations on offense, certainly when you don't run the ball. But he can't be the problem. And, and what's really, to me, and I realize it's, it, it's, a, it's a small snapshot, but in the two games where he's come in, and played well at Tennessee off the bench, or Tennessee off the bench, and at Houston off the bench. He's got like a one twelve rating, you know, eighty one percent completions, and and they've been efficient. Well, those defenses, those corners, they prepared for Anthony Richardson. So all of a sudden, you got Minshew, and he goes back and, and he can do his things. Well, these these the, the, these two starts, they've prepared for him, him. And he's sixty four percent completion, a seventy four rating with with the with the turnovers with the four turnovers, and that's sort of disturbing, and that's where it's going to be incumbent upon the, to Steichen and Jim Bob and all these guys to to realize that, that you know, the, the defenses see what we see, and he has limitations, and you simply have to keep him out of those. And then, I don't care what plays you call, he can't airmail balls down the field so safeties are basically making fair catches. Can't do that. Uh, for right now, I'm blaming it on Jacksonville, at Jacksonville, and all that. They are the better team, although Trevor Lawrence didn't do a hell of a lot. I mean, really. But, uh, you know, we'll get a better take. The next two weeks, we're going to tell us about all we need to know. Games at home against two very good defenses. So just just get your quarterback. Well, you hate to call him a game manager because that's, to me, a slap in the face. But do your job. And, and don't make things worse with turnovers because, again, this team is not equipped to come back from four, turn, probably two turnovers like that, certainly not four. Mike, you talked about Cleveland's defense, and look, 
Cleveland's defense won him a game yesterday against a really good, obviously a very good San Francisco team. Uh, missed field goal helps. But that defense and what they're about to see coming this weekend, where would you assess, especially from yesterday, how would you critique where the Colts' offensive line is right now? And, and I know they've been injured, right? And they've moved some guys around. How would you grade them yesterday? Oh, not very good. There was pressure. Uh, again, it, it, the run game didn't get going. I think that's more coaching than than, than, than the offensive line. Again, Jacksonville just stacked that is stacked the front, and, and the Colts were you know outmanned as far as personnel. So I, I not very good, you know, the old C minus type of thing. But I think part of it was was the coaching and not and not giving them a chance to run. Although they may have been they may have been just as ineffective. With with 15 more rushes, but it, it, it hurts to lose Braden Smith. It does, and that's not a knock on, you know, Blake Freeland. It's just you know, Braden Smith is a solid, you know, top 15 right tackle. He is, and so it, it's it's really difficult. And Cleveland, they've just got a tough up front, and they're going to disrupt things. And that's why I say the quarterback has to do what he does, and hopefully you can pound away a little bit with the run game and get some get some uh, reliable runs, some positive runs. Uh, but it's going to be an ugly game offensively like it was at Baltimore. It, it just is. Uh, this is a better defense probably than Baltimore's got. And But you did enough, and the quarterback, you know, I, I, yes, he played a role in the game up at Baltimore, but it was really the, it was really Matt Gay. So, so give your kicker a chance to win some games by not messing up and let the other parts of the team do what they do. Chap, were you surprised at all to see the snap count distribution shift Shaq Leonard's way over EJ Speed for the first time in three weeks? I know he missed all of week five, but it was about 52 to 27 in terms of snaps there for those two. I know it's been a point of conversation about that specific <laughs> linebacker position so far this season. Well, that, that's what Gus Bradley told us. Sort of was going to happen. You know, as we get closer to November, his snaps would pick up. I, I think they have a hard time taking EJ Speed off the field because he's playing at a high level. But but they just want to get Shaq more involved again, and and they obviously see that he's making those those improvements and all that. So I'll leave that to Gus. But I really don't, don't like to see EJ Speed off the field because he he and he and Zaire are pretty good players, and, and they make plays that, that you remember. But they want to get Shaq back involved, more involved. Mike Chappell, our guest, of course, from CBS4 and from WXIN Fox 59. Um, Mike, I thought yesterday Alec Pierce started to kind of show us something, and then he ends up getting hurt. I don't know the extent of that injury. It appeared as though he, he landed on his shoulder awkwardly. Um but that's kind of what we need to see out of him, isn't it? I mean, that was the first time really because I really feel like Alec Pierce this year, not only from the fact that you just need weapons for Gardner Minshew and then ultimately Anthony Richardson, but as you are starting to enter into the Michael Pittman contract negotiations, I feel like Alec Pierce's production is going to be critical from the Colts' standpoint in both areas. you agree? Yeah, and what I was impressed with is I thought his first catch was like one of those underneath rounds. Which which we haven't seen a lot of has been he's been more the vertical guy, 
but finding ways to get him involved and you know and you finally start to see that and then boy he goes down with the shoulder which I, I doubt we get much of a uh, of, of an update today but whenever a guy goes out with a shoulder injury it, it, it's normally something you know if you know what I mean so hopefully if he's out he doesn't miss much time because there's just not much depth reliable depth again I, everybody's got depth but people that you feel comfortable about putting it in place of it. If he's out for any time, by and large, it's going to be Pittman and Josh Downs and maybe some more of Kylan Granson uh, as more of a receiver. Uh, so it's, it, as much as we've, you know, the, the Colts haven't shown us much with Alec Pierce, I thought yesterday was a chance where we saw more and more and you thought, okay, maybe this is getting him going. Then he goes down hard. You hope he's not out long because they, they, they can ill afford to lose one of their top three receivers. Mike Chappell of Fox 9 and CBS 4 is our guest. Chap, this might be a question that winds up being asked today. I'm sure it will be, but you mentioned that as we get further into the season, Shaq Leonard's snap count likely to increase. At least that's what the Colts want to do from a philosophical standpoint. From the offensive game plan, at what point do we see things start to shift more towards Jonathan Taylor getting the edge in snap counts of Zach Moss. Is that a foregone conclusion? I mean, it, it increased nearly tenfold between week to week, week five and week six. Do you expect a further jump week seven? Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we talked to a few of us talked to Jim Irsay, uh was it last Saturday, week, a week ago Saturday, and he said, yeah, we're going to ease you, man, maybe three or four weeks before we really see Taylor back. Well, this is week three, uh, and boy, he looked pretty good on that uh, – that crossing pattern with the pass, didn't he? I mean, he showed speed. He ran away from people. And so that's why it's – they want to get – the more plays you get these elite players. Last night we saw Saquon Barkley kind of bottled up a lot. And then, boy, that one that couple of plays in the second half, he goes like for whatever it was, 22 and then 30 or 30-some. That's what those guys do. Uh, of course, you got to stick with a run game to do that. So, yeah, more and more. And, and, and that's – to me, that's not – I hope no one sees that as a disservice to Zach Moss. Uh, it's just that Jonathan Taylor, well, first you paid him, you know, $26 million guaranteed. But beyond that, he's, a, he's still a top five player in his position. And when he gets his feet under him, which maybe he has, maybe he has now, on, and he gets 70% of the snaps uh, this week. I, I keep going back to certain positions take time to kind of get up to speed. I go back to 99 when Edgerton missed most, all of training camp, and he goes out and wins a rushing title, you know, two years in a row. So I do think running backs, once they get their their football legs, they can step in and play. They really can. And it's not like this is a foreign offense to him, you know, foreign teammates. So I, I think this week more, much more, and unfortunately, that's going to mean less for Zach Moss, and he's done nothing, absolutely nothing to lose snaps. It's just that Jonathan Taylor's a guy. You know, Mike, the, the position in me that I've always thought would be the hardest if you're building a roster to nail down, and hear me out on this, is corner. Because corner, it feels like sometimes it guy, it's like a goaltender in hockey. Like guys can get on a hot streak, and then all of a sudden like their confidence goes away, and and now they're just – you know, Peyton Manning was one of the best, right, at realizing the other team's corner who was vulnerable, and he would just go yep. right at him. Jason, poor Jason David, probably still wakes up in a cold sweat. But <laughs> you know, you 
it, I feel like with corner, it takes the longest for a guy to get into rhythm, but then it has the shortest window before a guy can fall off a cliff. Where are the Colts right now in terms of the youth of their corners and how you would assess them? Each, you know, Gus Bradley and Ron Myers have said growing pains, and we're seeing it, every, you know, not every week, but nearly every week with with miscommunication, whether that is with the rookies. Each time yesterday they were involved in, at some level, with Juju on one side and Jalen Jones on the other with those touchdowns that were much easier than they should have been. Uh, the one earlier with, with, with the Rams, uh, with, with Nakua get, getting a wide open miscommunication. So it's going to happen. Corner is a lot like left tackle. It just is. Because you can play well for six, for 60 or 63 plays. If you get beat three, you are awful. Because when you get beat, it, you know, it, it's some kind of a big play. It just is. So it, it's unfortunate, but that, that's, you know, that, that's the job description. You know, Juju is showing they they really like him. Uh, his, his his size, his physical nature, and man, and all that, and his ball skills, and what he's played now five games. He's he's played five game, uh, four games. He's played four games, and Jalen Jones has played even less than that. So you're, you're going to have this is this is it. This is what you've got. I mean, they, they've got Gardner Minshew quarterback, and they've got young corners in, in the secondary, and that's. We can bitch and moan all we want about this is the way they this is how they planned on going into the season. It's not like it's been thrust upon them. Well, Minshew has with with the injury, but this is what they planned on, and you're we're just going to have to deal with it. But I think both these guys have upside. Certainly, Juju Brents has upside. My goodness, he really has a chance to be a, a good corner, but it takes some. It takes some speed bumps along the way, and I, like I said, the problem is with, with corners when you when you make a mistake, whether it's uh, giving up a big play or, or you get grabby for a penalty, it's going to cost you, and that's they, they're simply going to have to live with that. Mike, here's I'm going to put you on the spot here for fun. You ready? Sure. You've covered this team since they came over in the Mayflower trucks. Give me the five best corners that you've seen as Indianapolis Colts. Ooh. Uh, Kelvin Hayden, Gerard Powers, Ray Buchanan. Ray uh, Buchanan was yes. damn good. Boy, I know. I'm telling you, and, big and, play, Ray. That, that came, he started a big play here. Uh, Vontae Davis for that one stretch. Uh, who, I tell you, I, a guy that I really liked that he really got a bad rep was Eugene Daniel. Yeah, he was <laughs> – Eugene Daniel – He had – he just played on a bad team. You know what, Chap? too big. I'll tell you another guy, not to cut you off there, sorry. Different position. But in the moment, like Rob Morris was a really common whooping boy, right? Like fans love to to bitch about Rob Morris. And then you kind of realize after the fact that a lot of times when you saw Rob Morris coming late on a play, it's because he was covering for somebody else blowing an assignment, and he's the one that has the wherewithal to to try to make good on it. And I think Eugene Daniel somewhat was that factor. I remember with with Rob Morris, uh, the, the Tampa Bay game, the, the the comeback game, and McCardell got loose for whatever it was, a sixty yard, whatever it was. And the picture shows Rob Morris chasing him, and it wasn't his guy. And that that next, like the next week, I had a good, I had a good relationship with Morris, and I I walked by and he said, he said that wasn't my guy, but he he was. I tell you, and again, remember the 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 Super Bowl run with, with uh, Bob Sanders, well. 
people forget that also they put Rob Morris back in the mix. Now, of course, Sanders had the bigger impact, but Rob Morris was a, was a big part of that. He, he was a whipping boy because he, he was a late first-round pick, and people thought he should have been better. But he was pretty good. Uh, so many players before that pre-Manning were pretty good. Eugene Dan was really good on bad teams. You know, uh, uh, Jason Belzer. Really yeah, good Belzer. Secondary. Yeah, Belzer. Uh, Belzer had a little like he was kind of the first. Belzer was the first guy I remember, Mike, in the Colts when they first started to kind of have some legitimacy. He had like a swagger about him, right? Like he was kind of there, kind of like Bob Sanders was. Like he was a guy that, that the city kind of rallied around, right? He did. He did a photo op for somebody, whether it was a star, whether it was Indianapolis Monthly, where he's he's got his shirt off and he's doing all these poses. That guy was jacked. He really was a great guy. But you're thinking, holy smokes. And, of course, Sanders is a guy you could walk through the locker room and you think, why has he got his pads on? And he didn't. Oh, I know. He muscle was, on muscle on muscle. Like, yeah. Right. So, yeah, they've had they've had good corners. How about Ashley uh, Ambrose? I always thought Ashley Ambrose yeah. was like – I think it was Cincinnati he went to and he turned into a nice player there, but he, he was better. just he, coming he into his own. He got better when he left here. Yeah. Yes, he got better when he left here. He was, he was part of that – draft that should have been transformational with Entman and Coriot and didn't happen. But they've had good corners uh, and, and they had good corners when they had really good pass rushers. You know, funny how that how that goes hand in hand. But uh, they've had some. They're just going to let these kids grow into it. I say kids, these young players grow into it and that's where they are. That's what they decided to do. That, that was their choice. Uh, so it's going to kind of be you know, kind of buckle up and, and hopefully you have good times. Hopefully the good times outweigh the bad times. That's Mike, um, in conclusion, I'll save you, if you haven't gotten to it yet, uh, I'll save you a little bit of time, I guess, over the course of your week on your DVR. Uh, kind of a boring Saturday night of On Patrol Live. Not a lot Isn't of it? I, I, Yeah. I, I'm still I'm still an episode behind. Uh, <laughs> what? So, yeah, it, I tell you, the one I really like is the police, the police department in, in Hayes in Arkansas. Oh, got the guy. With, I'm telling you, I talked like this. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. and I'm thinking. You know, I looked it up. Hayes in Arkansas has like 1,500 people in it. So he, he must. Be, they all must be, you know, some former criminals because he's always pulling guys over. <laughs> the so. guy the other night asked to get a picture with him. He's like, "Wait a minute, I can I get my picture with you?" <laughs> yeah. Now they there was a guy. Uh, not to spo- spoiler alert here, I guess there was a guy on either Friday or Saturday this week that was running from the cops and dove into a creek. But what he didn't know is it was actually a sewage pit, and that was a oh, bit. Geez. Yeah, that was ugly. Yeah, my, my favorite time was when they start chasing guys, and then it's kind of like one of the, I remember one of the the old uh, Two and a Half Men episodes where release the dogs. Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. That would make me first. I would freeze in my spot, and then I'd pee down my leg because I don't want some dog chomping on my leg until the guy says okay release correct so i think and, those i think those cops sort of let, let let the dog get his fun in when he can oh the dog's good well as a matter of fact the, the one guy his choice was to either the dog was going to get him or jump into the sewage pit and he jumped into the sewage I'll go pit. to the sewage pit i'll go to the sewage pit <laughs> yeah, there you go all right well we'll see if the cold season goes there uh next weekend against cleveland who knows right but um uh, okay appreciate it we'll talk to you next monday Talk to you guys. All right, Mike Chappell uh, joining us on the hotline. Again, Dr. John Carlos, 1968 Olympic Games 55 years ago today, raised the fist in the air along with his teammate Tommy Smith. Peter Norman of Australia was on the podium as well. Dr. John Carlos on that 55-year anniversary joins us 30 minutes from now.
So you're wearing a Star Wars shirt? I thought that was like like a European flag. <laughs> yes, it is a Star Wars shirt, Jake. Yep. Okay. And then we were just discussing this um, because my my recollection and understanding of Star Wars is vague at best. But I thought Chewbacca, uh, like Han Solo, like rescued Chewbacca from he like freed him from something, and then Chewbacca's like forever indebted to him, and so Chewbacca is like runs around and is like his bodyguard now. Isn't that right? There's not a true in debt. I thought they like trend, got him. He like got him out of the zoo. Right? No, no. They they both escaped prison together. They were in prison. Yes. What was Chewbacca in prison for? Petty theft. <laughs> it's hard to do without. You know, he doesn't have the thumbs. I mean, like, what what was he stealing? He can't shoplift. I mean, I guess you can hide some of that fur, maybe. Right. The Wook, the Wookies were viewed as a uh, a, a threat to the Empire. That's what he is. He's a Wookie. Says, okay, so he so was he imprisoned or all the Wookies? A number of Wookies were. A lot of them were killed. I mean, it's mass genocide, hide, probably mass, right. Ma- mass genocide against the Wookies, Jake. Okay, and so and then what was Han Solo doing? In he was he was a he was a petty thief. He was a he was he was a, it was a what are you calling a not a bounty hunter but a uh, a pirate so to speak. He would acquire treasure or objects that people wanted and. And then sell they, them off for a high they price. They broke out together, like the two guys from Alcatraz or something. Excellent, kind of like that, yeah. And yeah. then they just said, "Okay, let's go fly things." The Millennium Falcon or the Millennial Falcon, as That's you right. like to refer to Eddie sometimes. And then, and then Luke, how does Luke meet them? Are they like Uber for him? Are they like like air flight Uber? Uh, yeah, effectively, yes, yes. Okay. Luke, Luke needed a Luke needed a ride, and Han Solo's ship was the only one he could turn to. Okay. There you go. Yep. Learn something new every day. Happy to help. Thank you. Uh, what else jumped out at you yesterday around the NFL or over the course of the weekend? I mean, there were some, like I said, there were some games that were just kind of there, right? I, Cincinnati looks like maybe they're kind of quietly turning the corner and getting the ship righted a little bit. I, I thought Cleveland beating San Francisco was can be ominous for Indianapolis because that defense is really good. And then uh, Houston... C.J. Stroud, man, he finally threw a pick, but the Texans are better than we thought, right? Yeah, I mean, that Stroud has looked every bit as good as you could hope for for a rookie quarterback, and it appears as though Houston is going to have something very promising to be able to build around. I guess the main thing that jumped out at me when you look at the day as a whole and you include our reactions after Chiefs-Broncos on Thursday night, which is that, oh, why don't these teams, like these true alleged contender teams take care of business? Why does it feel like they're playing with their food or playing down to their competition? If you needed a reminder of this, you got it in full-fledged form yesterday, twice. The Browns upsetting the 49ers and the Jets upsetting the Eagles is a reminder of the week-to-week parity that is present in the NFL. There's not true parity in the sense that like every team legitimately has a chance to win every year in terms of raising the Lombardi Trophy, but there is true parity in the sense that it's difficult to win in the National Football League. It's very, very hard to go undefeated for a clear reason because of that parity. And the Browns, while a good defensive team, like, no, should the Niners have lost that game? They were 10-point favorites. Probably not. Should the Eagles have coughed it up late to the Jets? No, probably not. But that's life in the NFL. It was a clear reminder in my mind, Jake, the kind of message from yesterday of parity being still present in the league. I have deprived, I have deprived you the opportunity, not intentionally, but... And I do feel bad, Jimmy, honestly. <laughs> Let me tell you, where do you think I feel bad? Um, I mean, I would assume based on where the day has gone and what we've not covered yet, it is something. Well, no, you wouldn't feel bad about Notre Dame. It can't be that, right? It can't I be Notre Dame, USC. I do feel bad about Notre Dame. Really? Okay. 
And I'll Continue. tell you why. So the hard thing about being an elite in college football from a fan standpoint is you become accustomed to an expectation and a hope. And in sports in general, I have said this so many times, it probably is tiresome. But sports is oftentimes about chasing a high, either a mythical high that you've never been to before and your mind starts allowing you to start thinking that your team is going to go there, what it would be like if your team was in the championship game, what it would be like if your team made the Super Bowl, what it would be like if your team goes to the NBA Finals, and you start thinking about what the bars would look like and how exciting it would be and what the parade would be and greeting the team at the airport and recapturing all those things that happened when you were a kid. and you Okay. Or... Your team's been there recently. You become accustomed to it. I'm a Clemson fan, right? And so you're like, it's the norm when college football playoff and it's New Year's Eve and your team's playing and you're like, man, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be excited because my team's in the Outback Bowl. I'm I'm playing in for <laughs> I, I'm in a bigger bowl game than that. And you get accustomed to it. Yeah. And then you open the year with a loss to Duke and you're like, okay, it's probably over. Right? There, and so it's easier to to like I've known since. When they lost to Duke, Clemson, for example, I thought, okay, if they run the table, they can still get their way in because they'll have wins over Florida State, Miami, and Notre Dame. But you've wasted your get-out-of-jail-free card week one of the season, and it's Pretty very much. difficult as well to stay perfect in college football. And then you were also hoping that the Duke loss or the, the Duke loss would really sustain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then they lose to Florida State, and you're like, okay, now they're officially out, right? I feel bad for Notre Dame to an extent, Jimmy, because that win against USC, and I'm giving you an outside perspective, and I'm sorry to be this harsh, okay? In the grand scheme, and by the grand scheme, I mean in the expectations of and hopes of Notre Dame fans of what they're accustomed to. In the grand scheme, while it is fabulous to beat an arch rival and blow them out and be convincingly in the lead the entire game and knock their kind of cocky quarterback and i say that from a notre dame standpoint because of the fingers last year and the writings and everything else knock him out of the heisman running at least for now those things are all fabulous except for that they come a week after getting blown off the field against lsu who lost to Pitt, or excuse me louisville Louisville, who lost to Pitt, and so it's kind of irrelevant like you look at it and you go okay it's all wonderful and it's gravy but it still is happening so recently to yeah. that Louisville game that it it almost is more painful because it more emphasizes the what could have been it does but i don't know if this is clarity for me or if this is how all Notre Dame fans feel but you're right short term and by short term i mean this season largely irrelevant because you're not going to reach the standard that you want to reach which is a college football playoff appearance which is a national championship game appearance, which is ultimately a national title. That that was off the board and died in Louisville when you forgot to show up and Jeff Brom and company bullied you for four quarters. I will say, though, and I was, I think, as hard as any about, okay, the honeymoon period's over. Like, where is the direction of the program happening? I thought it would be a very close game against USC. I did not expect them to dominate the way they did and dominate in such a fashion, Jake, to your point about why they knocked Caleb Williams off a pedestal. And Eddie and I talked about this on Saturday night as well. We were texting one another. This was not a game that Notre Dame won because USC's narrative or the truth about USC being they have a horrendous defense. That is not why Notre Dame won. It's not like it was a shootout and they did what anybody would expect a good offensive team to do, which is play well against a bad defense. Their defense stepped up. They manhandled USC just like Louisville did to them a week before. And it's a signature win for Marcus Freeman. And I think 
you have to close strong. You need to win out the rest of the way, but it could be one that we look back on as a turning point or a turning point win within the Marcus Freeman era. That It's easier said than done. There's a lot of work left to be done, but the fact they were able to do it against USC, against a rival, and do it from Jump Street, that matters to me in the long term. But yes, in the short term, it probably doesn't change much in terms of where you're going to end up in the postseason. The problem is they don't really have a chance to get a, a truly like wow win between now and the right. end of the year. I mean, Pitt's terrible, right? Yeah. Wake Forest isn't any good. Uh, Stanford's terrible. I mean, literally, between Stanford's got what, two wins? Something so you like got that. seven between, between, in their remaining four games, they're taking on teams with a total of like 11 wins. They could I mean, afford to, they could afford to lose one. We knew that going into the year. I don't. I had this conversation on Saturday as well. I don't know if in the expanded playoffs that they would get in with two. I, I just don't know. You I mean, mean next year? Correct. I, I I had a conversation. If they were to go the rest of the way without a loss and just two losses on their resume, would they still be a playoff team in an expansion? I think there's a conversation to be had, but that's such a foreign concept of what the committee is going to value and who all will have the best chance to get in when they expand to 12. But I am looking forward to next season because it alleviates some pressure off Notre Dame knowing that you don't have to go undefeated every year to be able to make the playoff. You can afford to stumble a time or two. Uh, Latest polls, top five. The same in both the coaches and the media poll. Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, Florida State, and Washington. Your top five. Oklahoma and Penn State are inverted depending on which poll you look at. And then eight, Texas. Nine, Oregon, and ten, North Carolina in the media poll, coaches poll, uh, Texas, Alabama tied at eight, actually, and North Carolina is 10th, Oregon, 11. Give me a number, 13 through 25, Eddie Garrison. Uh, I'll pick my favorite number, 21. 21. So that means that you have agreed that what whoever is ranked 21st, you are going to buy a t-shirt. That's your team. You're going to root for them in a bowl game, correct? Sure. All right. You are a Louisville Cardinal. Oh, no. <laughs> Jimmy Cook, 13 to 25. Give me a number. 15. Number 15. Are you going with the media or coaches poll? Dealer's choice. Uh, I'll give you the coaches poll. You are a fan of buying a t-shirt and going to the bowl game of the Tennessee Volunteers. All right. If you'd gone the other way, it would be Notre Dame. Hmm. It was 15th in the media poll. All right. All right. Give me a number for myself. 13 to 25. Eddie, what do you think? 24. Number 24. Uh, are you giving me, Eddie Garrison, the coaches poll or the media poll? Two different teams? Let's go with the coaches poll this time. Coaches poll, baby. I have the football juggernaut. The tidal wave, if you will. The pokes? Not the pokes. Oh. I, no, dude, the pokes. Let me tell you, Air Force, they had that game in hand. I watched it. Air Force beat them. I, I told you Air Force would win. Um, the Tulane Green Wave, baby. All right. I do like their uniforms. They have good color. Ooh, you like color uniforms? That, that, those helmets are terrible. Not the, I said the uniforms, not the helmet. What is that logo? It's like a little green blob with, with like a, it looks like he's got a Donald Trump hair, but it's blue and that's the wave. It's terrible. <laughs> that, it, look at it. The, the, the Tulane logo looks like the Western Kentucky red blob hilltopper, but instead of, but then he has on top of him a, a light blue, his hair is a blue wave coming off of him. 
yeah. they're the green wave, right? Aren't it's they a, the green wave? It's a T with the wave. So let me, is that a T? Yeah, it's a T with the wave. That's, and not, then, a, that's not a T. Well, that's one logo. Then they have one that looks no, like look at a, the little, a ghost. Look at the little blob monster. Yeah, yeah. Here's what I don't understand, though. They're the green wave, and the wave of his hair is blue. I'm not colorblind. Who came up with this? Well, Shouldn't the wave be green? There's, the a green couple wave? That are, there's a couple that are white. The wave is white, for what it's worth. That doesn't work either. They're the green wave. What the hell are they doing? John Carlos, who raised his fist in the air in 1968, 55 years ago today, joins us on the program in under 15 minutes. Dr. John Carlos, one of the iconic images of the civil rights era in 1968, 55 years ago today. After winning a medal in the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City, raised his fist with a glove on in the medals ceremony, joins us in just a couple of minutes. Eddie, before that, a little bit of news from the NFL from last night, correct? Correct. So this one coming from Ian Rappaport. As uh, Matt Eberflus was speaking to the media in Chicago, says Justin Fields is doubtful for this week with a dislocated thumb, but he has no overall timetable for his return. Eberflus says it's really going to come down to grip strength. Um, and then as for Damian Harris, he has been released from the local hospital in Buffalo, but he has neck pain. Otherwise, he's going to be fine, a source told ESPN's Jeremy Fowler. Okay, so that is good news after the situation with the ambulance on the field. And then, night. this was a little bit earlier, uh, Frank Reich is giving up play-calling duties, something he would not do here when he, when he was in Indianapolis with Carolina. Now, Panthers offensive coordinator Thomas Brown will take over the play-calling for the Panthers. Dolphins 42-21 winners doubling up Carolina yesterday. Dr. John Carlos is next. 2 o'clock on a Monday. How are you? Jake Query, Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison here as well. It is a huge honor for me to once again be able to chat with our next guest on the program, who I, in a previous job, uh, conducted an interview with. As a matter of fact, it may have been five years ago, but I wanted to have him on today because 55 years ago today, October the 16th of 1968, one of the most famous images in Olympic history, photographer John Dominus, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, snapped the photo that all of you, I think, have seen, and it's of the three men who medaled in the 200-meter dash in Mexico City in the 1968 Olympic Games, 55 years ago today, and the man who won the bronze, who had won gold in that event in the 1967 Pan Am Games a year prior was one of the two, along with his teammate Tommy Smith, to raise his hand up in the air in protest as part of, at the time, an incredibly courageous act, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And Dr. John Carlos joins us on the program now. Dr. Carlos, first off, uh, a pleasure to speak with you. How are you today? I'm doing real fine. Doing real fine. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I appreciate your time, and let's begin with this. For those that are unfamiliar, and I don't know that there would be anybody who is, but 1968 was obviously just an, an era of time. I find it fascinating. There was so much political unrest. There was so much civil awareness and movement towards civil rights, that not just in the United States, but around the world. And I think that's the one thing that I'd like for you to illuminate to our listeners your protest at that time was not just about being a black man in America, but really about oppression worldwide. Can you take me back through just the, the mindset that you had going into the Olympic Games and utilizing sports to be able to open minds worldwide? 
Oh, first of all, it started out with uh, just the prejudice and bias that we had to deal with in San Jose at the time. Uh, you know, from an informative years, there outright bias and prejudice towards people. So by the time I got to San Jose State, it was still lingering. It was still in the environment you know, to the point where if you went to a university, it was very difficult if you were a person of color to go out and find a house or to find a part-time job or to work your way through your education. Uh, we realized it was it was a significant problem there on the campus. But, you know, like you, you look at the portrait and you stand so close to it, you really can't see all the texture in the portrait because you're too close. So we had to back up and realize that this thing was uh, far bigger than what we were facing on a little college campus. We realized it was rampant throughout the United States. Then as we stepped forward, we realized that it was rampant throughout the world. So then it wasn't about, you know, Black rights, it was about human rights, it was about humanity. And that's how we encompassed everyone taking part in this, just black Americans. Of course, we had a great concern for black Americans, but we were black Americans. But we realized there was other elements in society that were suffering as, as, as us or be worse. Dr. Carlos, heading into the games with, with all of that awareness and the protest itself, first off, you know, how much, I, I guess, you had become more vociferous about those situations that were of concern to you. And at the time, I'm only assuming here, but I'm assuming that it took a particular amount of courage and, and facing a lot of backlash, not only to be political, but also to be a minority being political at that time in this country. How much backlash did you get from authority, whether it be within USA Track and Field or the Olympic Committees or just people, were there were there warnings to you of, hey, we don't want to see this, we want to see sports, and that was it, kind of like what we've seen of late within the country? Well, it was one of me from the day I was born. You know, you black, stay in your place. That was the overall tongue of black America, stay in your place. Be honored we allowed you to be an Olympian, but make sure that you stay in the circle. You know, it wasn't no situation where I was being oppressed. It was like we were being oppressed from the World War One to present day. You sit back and you say, well, uh, it's, it's a situation where uh, the old saying say, if you see something, say something. Like if I see a guy going into the airport and he's strapped, looking like he got a bomb, and I don't say nothing, then there's certainly to be many people lose their lives. People injured or maimed. Same difference is if I see something that doesn't deal with racism or bias or prejudice here in life, I have to say something for fear that so many other people will lose their lives in the midst of me not saying anything. So it's necessary for me to step up and take the initiative to speak on the issues that's confronting me. I'm one of the ones that, they, so to speak, survived in terms of saying, I got out of the hood. I made it to the pentagon of being a athlete. But what about all of those that were left, never got a chance to get out? Those in the middle that had genius with inside them based on how they can cure heart disease or how they can cure cancer or how they can cure infancy or how they can cure balding. Those individuals never come to fruition based on prejudice and racism. Hey, doctor, so, let me let me 
And I, I apologize for interrupting, Doctor. Let me do this real quick because I think it's a really important conversation. The phone connection right now is a little bit choppy, so I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to see if Eddie can reconnect and and get a better connection there to continue this conversation. Because, Jimmy, it's I think it's an incredibly important conversation with great insight from Dr. Carlos about a time that has always fascinated me, to be quite honest with you. I mean, it's one of the cornerstone moments in terms of athletes utilizing their platform to make a statement for what they feel is right and for what they feel needs to be said. And I'm curious, you know, when, when we look at, and I get it. I mean, like of late, you know, when, when athletes use that platform to, to demonstrate or illustrate something they're unhappy about. And people are like, Hey, stick to sports. I, I, I do understand it. But at the same time, there had to have been the element of that at that time. And, and yet history has looked back on that, I think, very favorably, right? Yes. Very favorably. So, um, you know, sometimes you wonder if that's because of the cause, if that's because of time. You know, there are so many different aspects that go into that. We have him again. Eddie, we're going to try him. Okay. Doctor, sorry about that. Um, just wanted to make sure we got a better connection there because I think it is really an important conversation. Um, did you foresee, I guess a, a, a bigger question would be this. Did you think it would be possible at that time, or did you even have the foresight to know the magnitude of the event and think about the fact that it was something that would still be discussed and still be relevant 55 years later? Well, man, you know, to be honest with you, and I had a prelude to this when I was a child, man. I was seven, eight years old. The creator of this universe gave me a vision of me in a stadium. Uh, I didn't know it was a stadium as much as I knew it was a grass field, and I could see all the all the conversation, all the yippee within the stadium about something that I was doing, not being privileged to know what I was doing at that particular time. Uh, I remember as a kid telling my parents I was in a movie, blah, blah, blah. And then here, 15, 16 years later, I'm on the victory stand, the exact same thing that happened in the vision happened on the victory stand. So I had a prelude as to what was going on. If you notice in the, in the, in the portrait, you don't see any strength on me whatsoever to make a statement such as that to society because I was aware of this prior to happening. One of the things that I think is interesting about the photo is when you look at it, and I want you to, to kind of shed light on this, Doctor. Dr. John Carlos is our guest who won the bronze medal in 1968 in Mexico City. You're standing in position three, the bronze spot on the podium, with your left fist raised. Your teammate Tommy Smith is standing on the gold medal spot number one with his right fist raised both of you are wearing black gloves and then standing in front of you is the white australian peter norman who is standing with his arms at his side one would look at that photo and they would think to themselves boy this poor fella must wonder how he got in you know what all was going on around him but that's not accurate right peter norman was very supportive of your initiative correct no one put a gun to Peter Norman's head to have put that Olympic project for human rights badge on. He put it on because he thought strong in what the people standing for. Peter Norman was a man, and I respect Peter, love Peter eternity. Uh, just based on his courage and his, his uh, paradigm in terms of how society could be, because our visions were pretty much the same. Uh, why did Peter Norman step up to the point where he did? Because even Norman understood the, the problem of the Aboriginal people in Australia. This problem was the same problem that we had in America. He couldn't sit there, I'm doing what you guys did because I feel what you guys did. No, he couldn't feel what we did 
what we felt, but he felt that he could support what he was doing in terms of complaining about what we were feeling and how we were being treated. Last thing here, doctor, before we let you go, and I appreciate the time, um, but the service, the cell service is a little choppy, but I did want to get to this. Just what would you say to people right now in terms of where we are today and do you feel that the things that you were trying to point out in 1968, 55 years ago in those Olympic Games, are we in a better position? Are we in a better spot or are we kind of in a vacuum? I think it's in our hands now, brother. I think it's in the hands of the creator right now. Uh, I think the, the time telling us that we have enough time to, to uh, solve all of our issues and, and we play gated that time, not out of our hands is in the time of the creator of this universe. Dr. Carlos, I appreciate the time very much. I know, obviously, I can imagine that you probably get a lot of requests for interviews. You have a lot of things going on. Congratulations, by the way, on your not one but two honorary doctorate degrees from different universities of which you attended. And again, thanks for back in 1968, what you and Tommy Smith had the courage to do and for the time and sharing about it today. Appreciate it, man. I'm staying for all and all staying for one. All right, there we go. Dr. John Carlos on the hotline. I apologize that, you know, sometimes those things happen, right, just in terms of overall cell connections. Uh, he's out in California, so I don't know if, you know, sometimes you get in the hills of California, it gets a little tough. Um, but that is, Jimmy, you know, I have, for me, and let me just opine on this and, and why on a Colts Monday and a lot going on, why I, why I wanted to do that interview. And I wanted to have Tommy Smith on as well, to be honest with you. Um but what has always fascinated me, and maybe my brain just works differently than people, and sometimes that's tough. I was born in 1972, and I was born a, you know, a white kid in Indiana in 1972, and two-parent household, great upbringing, etc. I had nothing for which to complain. But I always found it fascinating. When I was a kid, the television shows that were in syndication were like Leave it to Beaver and, you know leave it to beaver primarily i'll just stick with that and everything was like this idyllic lifestyle of america in the in the early 60s you know yes miss landers no miss landers june cleaver's wearing her pearls vacuuming all the time and it was like this imagery of perfect america and then you get into the late 60s and you've got you know the kent state shooting in 1970 and the protests of vietnam and just this you know the assassination of dr king the assassination of bobby kennedy just this terrible civil unrest that was epicentered probably in the protests of vietnam but what people forget is that like leave it to beaver when you're looking at that class of miss landers with with beaver cleaver and whitey and gilbert and yes ma'am no ma'am And what they don't tell you is that if you flash forward to 10 years later, then that's the same group, the same era, the same children that have long hair, that are smoking weed, going to Woodstock to protest the war and, you know, throwing burning bottles in San Francisco to and and the angst and the anger and, and the outrage about everything going on. And I've always been fascinated by what I believe to be the greatest seismic shift from a cultural standpoint in this country between, say, 1960 and 1970 or 75, that 15-year period, which I didn't really see, but I've read about, seen the images, studied all of it, 
And I find it absolutely fascinating. And to be able to talk to people that were in the epicenter of it, that at that time, one can only assume that the perceptions of their actions probably were very polarizing. But 55 years later, you look at and you say, you could call them pioneers, you could call them groundbreaking, but at the same time, they might have simply been precursors of the exact same things of which are affecting and polarizing society today. And, and maybe I'm the only one that finds that fascinating. But I do. And, you know, it's different. I get the fact that now people can say because of Dr. Carlos and Tommy Smith's actions, life is we are more aware, we're more conscientious than we were back then. And so therefore, athletes don't have the excuse or the leg to stand on now of oppression that those guys did. I don't personally buy that. I understand why people might think that, but I don't personally buy it. But it's a moment that's frozen in time to me and one of the most if you were talking about a famous sports photos that's got to be top one it, it, it's one of the most indelible photos in, in the history of american sports in the history of the olympics in, in the history of, of social justice and yeah I'd, I'd put it up there top five top three the i wanted to ask about that but obviously the connection didn't allow it of at what point did you realize that that iconic moment had become one of the most indelible parts of not just American right. society, but of the entire Olympic Games. And a notable quote from Tommy Smith, he said this about a decade ago, the only regret he ever had was the fact that it needed to be done. And I think that is yeah. the same with, with today's athlete as well that feels compelled to take a stand. He had been asked to boycott the Olympics in 1968 and did not do so. Um, as a matter of fact, Tommy Smith and John Carlos were among those who had put a list out that said that they would be potentially boycotting if a number of different things around the world they did not feel took place they obviously ended up going uh one of the things i know just from previous interview with john carlos peter norman who is he talked about the the white australian that put on the badge uh again for the cause if you will for lack of a better phrase and the fact that they wore the badge for the olympic project for human rights is what they called it and peter norman wore his when peter norman passed away i believe that tommy smith and john carlos both um i know they went to his service i believe they may have even been pallbearers for him so there was a a bond amongst those three that carried on throughout the lifetime for all of them um, but at the at the time they did it like i said they were basically they were strongly criticized strongly criticized at the time um they became outcasts for a really long time i mean it took 30 or 40 years before they got the proper national recognition that they did brett musburger described them at the time as a couple of black-skinned stormtroopers who were juvenile and unimaginative obviously brett musburger himself rose to prominence but um the other thing that they did do is they they went onto the podium without their shoes on and that was as a sign of the oppression and poverty of black America in 1968. But that was uh, 55 years ago today. And I thank John Carlos for joining us. Also, on this date in history, I mentioned it earlier, um, obviously a more somber tone, but Dan Weldon was fatally injured in Las Vegas on this date in 2011. It's hard to believe that was 12 years ago. Um, and... You know, there's so much that you can look at at that as well in terms of just the tragedy of it, but also the spirit of Weldon himself because he really was. Dan Weldon, to me, was a fascinating driver because he came over here 
And I don't know that he truly understood the magnitude of the Indianapolis 500 until he got here. You know, he was a kart racer growing up. He raced against Justin Wilson, who tragically also was fatally injured. Uh, Jensen Button was one that he raced against. Uh, Mark Taylor was one that he raced against in go-karts in Europe or in England growing up. But when he came here, I don't know that Weldon fully understood what the Indy 500 was about. And then once he got a taste of it, he absolutely understood it. And there were few drivers, if any, not only that A, had the record that he had as a driver at Indy, but B, that promoted it more. I mean, he became an absolute ambassador for the Indianapolis 500, which is probably why fans admired and liked him so much. He he was um, truly exactly what you would see. I mean, it's kind of funny because Weldon, the the joke about him by his competitors was the fact that he had his teeth done, and they were like huge. He was like Matt Dillon and something about Mary, like that. You know, he just wanted the big choppers, but it was perfectly fitting because. His teeth were larger than life, but so was his smile, right? And that that was kind of radiant of his personality, and that's why he became a favorite of fans, not just because he was so accessible, but also because he shared the passion just as fans did for racing and for the Indianapolis 500-mile race, which was what made him so popular and transcended him um, beyond just the 500 for a lot of race fans and that followed him throughout. So he was... Um, lost on this day. It was a sad day. I have not seen Lionheart yet, the movie that's, my understanding is it's still being shown at Newfields. It was part of the Heartland Film Festival. And look forward to seeing that. You have not seen it, right, Jimmy? No, I wasn't able to, but I remember you bringing it up a week or two ago um, when we talked about it. Yeah, so they showed it, and it's still being shown at Newfields. So uh, definitely something on the calendar for me. But um, two two items of note from the sports calendar on this day in history but the calendar yesterday for the Colts was in Jacksonville and the game with Gardner Minshew throwing seemingly every time you looked up Jimmy he had one interception in the I think it was his third one it almost looked like I don't know if the ball like slipped out of his hand you're talking about the one that he sailed the Pittman Pittman Jr. was his target I I took me two or three watches it was like a dying duck going through the air it took me two or three targets to figure out who he was trying to go to it either had to have slipped out of his hands or he just straight sailed the ball but it looked like he was trying to find Michael Pittman Jr. up on the right side and look I'm I had forgotten this but Chap highlighted it Mike Chappell did during our conversation earlier you'll be able to find that a little bit later just go to 1075thefan.com or search Querying Company wherever you get your podcasts but yeah that's probably a career worst day for Gardner Minshew. So am I anticipating that that's what it's going to be like for the rest of the season? No. I mean, that, that's an all-time bad day to turn the ball over as much as he did when he's a quarterback that's viewed as a not a game manager, but a, but a possession manager, someone that's not going to hurt you in terms of the way he takes care of the football, of course, strip-sacked as well in that game. Just an all-around tough performance, and the marks will be, at least for a week, against the Colts O-line as well, as there were times where, where they faltered a ton too after we had given them praise of looking like they were bouncing back to their old form. So it's not a total wash in terms of what the season can be from a development standpoint, but you did get somewhat of an indicator of, we talked about it, for Jacksonville, that's a separation game. And if they're able to put their foot on the gas the rest of the way, the Colts' only hope is that the rest of the AFC middles around in the waters of wildcard territory and maybe they squeak in. Right. You know the um, the 
the game yesterday to me showed what I've been saying all along, and that is that a donut tire eventually bubbles. And I like Gardner Minshew a great deal. One of the things I think that really hurts Minshew, there's something I thought about schematically that defensively I think showed yesterday that is the challenge that the Colts now have to realize with Gardner Minshew. And it's almost something that is a tribute or a testament to the talent of what they're waiting on. And all of that sounds really weird, but I'll tell you exactly what I mean and expand on it next. So what we know is this regarding Anthony Richardson. We know that the possibility is still on the table that he will have surgery on his shoulder and be out for the year. And I think we can lean that way, quite frankly, because as more time goes on, and they move further back, yes, sir? The picture's not getting more positive as we move further back, Correct. to your point. There's no... The silver linings that are coming out are silver linings for surgery, not silver linings Correct. for... Well, he got this second opinion, and actually it's only a, a grade one sprain, or it's actually less significant than we thought he could be out there in three weeks. Yeah, it, totally It's definitely agree. trending towards season-ending surgery. Hey, here's the reality, and I'm going to use an analogy I said earlier. Anthony Richardson's like when you have $5,000. You have it right in front of you, and that's great. And you can spend it right now. That's great. Or you can say, you know what? If I can just hold off on this for nine months and invest it into a COD, I can turn it into even more money through, you know, keeping it locked up and letting it grow and develop. And I realize that you need Richardson on the field getting reps, but if he's hurt, he's hurt. And if you know that surgery limits greatly the chance of this shoulder giving you problems in the future, then I think you have to go that way. And especially if you know they've already dropped one game, so you drop another game or two during the Minshew fill-in, and they're going against a darn good defense in Cleveland who just beat San Francisco on Sunday. You lose a couple of those, and now you know you're looking at best a wild card. Okay. Does that really do you any good? And then you draft 19th instead of keeping yourself in position to get some really good pieces. Now, here's the challenge, I think, schematically that they ran into yesterday, that they're going to have to shore up. And this is where Jonathan Taylor becomes a central figure. Two months ago, Jake, did the Colts need Jonathan Taylor? I don't know if they do because this year is all about Anthony Richardson. All about Anthony Richardson, development of Anthony Richardson, building on Anthony Richardson, comfort level of Anthony Richardson. Does Jonathan Taylor help that? Sure. But the focus is the guy wearing number five, right? Well, he's not there. Now, if they want to try to win games and be competitive, or if they want to help Gardner Minshew, the reality is when Gardner Minshew got out there yesterday against Jacksonville, defense is now can play you completely differently with Gardner Minshew because once once Gardner Minshew drops or gives a look like it's a pass play, you don't have to worry about Minshew all of a sudden doing a quarterback draw or a design play where he's rolling out and he's trying to get yards for you or he, he's becoming a tailback slash fullback. That's exactly what Anthony Richardson brings to the table that makes him different and makes him dangerous for a defense. For a defense, you can't commit to one way or another because you have no idea where this guy's going 
right? Is he is he going to uncork that arm? Is he going to pull down and run? Just when he drops back and you start to retreat back a little bit, now all of a sudden he takes off and run. Oh, good. oh holy cow. And boom, you got to go for it, right? And so that element defensively is always keeping defenses at bay when Anthony Richardson is the guy taking the snap. Now they know, okay, well, this guy, as soon as he drops back, we know he's going to throw, so we're dropping back. We're doing whatever we need to. That's where you need draw plays or you need design out of backfield plays out of Moss or Taylor. Notably, it would be Taylor on like a draw play or a stretch play, and and yet you didn't see any of that yesterday. And they've got – if they want to help Gardner Minshew now and they want to, in fact, be competitive and play games, Jimmy, they've got to mix some of that stuff up into the playbook. The loss – of a year of development for Anthony Richardson is bad enough, but you cannot afford for that potential loss. Again, that's just where it's trending, right? There's been no official announcement, but that potential loss, you cannot afford for that to be compounded into a loss of development for every other weapon on this offense, particularly in the passing game. I'm talking about Michael Pittman Jr., Kylan Granson, yes, even Alec Pierce, Josh Downs, the list goes on. You cannot afford to have another year wasted with this offense, and the only way for it to not be a game plan of, well, he's going to drop back and throw it 55 times. Nothing else we need to be fearful of is Jonathan Taylor's impending return to form, which is to say a majority of the snaps, which is to say you're no longer able to just, well, they're just going to pass it every time. We, we don't need to be worried about this running game. It's nowhere near as potent as it was a couple years ago. And sure, Zach Moss had a good game, but this team is not going to be able to beat us running the ball. It's not just about what increases their chances to win games, Jake. Jonathan Taylor getting back to a majority of the snaps, getting back to the back that he was proving to be in 2021, that we think he still can be in 2023, not only improves your chances to win, it improves life for Gardner Minshew to be able to help in your assessment and development of weapons that are going to matter a year from now if it takes that long for Anthony Richardson to return. Have you seen the movie Major League? Yes. Last at-bat of the year. Jake Taylor's at the bat, at the plate, right? Mm-hmm. What is this? Taylor's calling his shot. Oh, we haven't seen this since Babe Ruth in the World Series. And then what's Jake Taylor do? They send Willie Mays Hayes and Jake Taylor bunts, right? And when he bunts, the camera slows down on the screen and it shows the third baseman for the Yankees. And he's all crouched down, way back by the bag, and then you see his his eyes get the size of silver dollars, and he yells out an expletive because he realizes he was not in formation for a bunt, and now he's got to run up and get the ball, right? Yeah. And Jake Taylor, who can barely run, beats the, the play at first, and Willie Mays Hayes scores. Now, my point being, that, that defender, that third baseman, that's what you want defenses to look like yeah. when Anthony Richardson drops back and at the last second decides he's going to run. The defense goes, Oh, and they look just like that guy. You don't have that with Minshew. It's a two-game sample size, but with Minshew and Moss as your lead quarterback, lead back combination, too much of the Colts' offensive minutes have been spent in between the 30s. You're very rarely seeing a drive that's going to be christened with a touchdown. That's just not the case through two games with Minshew as your lead starter. And yes, again, Zach Moss has proven himself to be a worthy back in the NFL, but Ask anybody that covers the team. Ask anybody internally. Probably even ask Zach Moss himself. Jonathan Taylor is supposed to be on paper and has proven before he is the better running back. He is a top three running back in this league. You need that to be unlocked once again. Again, Jake, not just to win games, but just for the overall 
pace and development of this team if it is a year lost with Anthony Richardson. Because the reps are gone from him. You can't let the reps be taken away from the receiving core. You just can't. I think I personally can't wait. I tweeted this out yesterday. I just can't wait for the integration process of Taylor to be completely over with because he had 33 snaps yesterday, had 17 carries, and it seemed like every single time he touched the ball other than the rub route where he got open and uh, had a nice big play in the passing game, there's just nowhere for him to run. Like, there's no space. And I feel like that's because the defense knows, all right, Taylor's back in the game. More than likely, he's going to get the ball. I'm going to wait because I don't think this is going to be the case. But if we see the same level of play from Taylor and the same body language from Taylor in three weeks that we have that we saw yesterday, then the narrative about him starts to get ugly. Not ugly, but I'm I'm be- I'm basically going to say like he got his money. Is he checked out? I don't think that's going to be the case. Would you agree though? Before that conversation starts, I need Eddie shift to happen. I need it to be a ninety to ten percentage-wise snap count. Like I, I need him to be the lead back. I can't have him be in every other... Because Eddie's right. What are they doing when John Taylor's out there? Yes, they did pass them once or twice, but for the most part, you see him run on the field, they're handing the ball off yeah, to him. I, that's fair. I mean, that's fair. But but again, for the money they're giving him, sure. then then yes, I need to see that yeah. as well. I would agree. Right? I mean, no question about that. And the fact that... You know, but I thought when he, when he got the... When his number was called yesterday, it was like... You just kept waiting for something to happen, mm-hmm. and it didn't. Query and company. What are we doing there? Okay. I saved the wrong thing. We don't have the breaking news sender. I got to find it. Do you want to do that? Do you want to just do it audibly? Dun, 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 and that's the buildup. Now, people are waiting by the, on the edge of their seat. They're like, well, this is exciting. There's breaking news. I wonder what the breaking news is. When I hear the breaking news sounder, I'll know that that means we the have breaking news. The age-old journalism phrase is actually not who's first. It's who has the sound to go along with your breaking news. That's, that's right. first. That's exactly right. Yep. Um, Eddie is feverishly looking here. I can't find it. Hold on. Do, I have it, it saved somewhere. Didn't we have a, 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 a – we just had to do that video that we had to watch. Wasn't one of them on hotkeys? Wasn't it how to do hotkeys? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I saved something over it accidentally in our automation system. Okay. So that's my fault. So now I have to go back through all my files and find it. Do you want me just to pull it up on my computer here? That's or should I just possible. tell you what the breaking news is? Just tell us what the breaking uh, the news AP is. The AP College Basketball Top 25 is out for the preseason. And it's a bit of a surprise, actually. There's a big surprise, I think, in the top 25. I found this to be surprising, and I'm like, wait, really? I actually had to read it like three times. I looked literally three different times. Each time that I was waiting for the breaking news sounder, I was rereading because I was surprised by what I was seeing. So I will tell you exactly what the surprise is next. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day, the ALCS will take the Astros to bounce back over the Texas Rangers. NLCS, Philadelphia Phillies get off to a 1-0 series lead over the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight. And for Monday Night Football, I'll take the Cowboys on the money line, but... CeeDee Lamb finds the end zone, as does Austin Eckler, who makes his return to the Chargers. Eddie, you have some bets today. I do. I'm going with two props here. We'll take CeeDee Lamb over five and a half receptions. The squeaky, what is it? The squeaky, what is it? Gets the oil or whatever? 
squeaky wheel. Thank you. Squeaky wheel gets the oil, and we've seen it already a couple different times this year with uh, wide receivers complaining. C.D. Lamb the most late, is the latest wide receiver to complain about not being involved. He gets involved tonight against the very poor secondary. Over five and a half receptions, and then I will take Tony Pollard over 69 and a half rushing yards. Jimmy, I don't like your bet with the Astros, so I'm taking the Rangers today. I like Nathan Evaldi on the mound over Framber Valdez. And plus, don't know if you saw this, Jordan Alvarez dealing with an illness. Not good for that Houston lineup. So I'll take the Rangers at plus odds here. Uh, by the way, Eddie, do we happen to have the breaking news sounder? The AP College basketball top 25 is out. Preseason poll. The number one team in the land. Would you like to guess, Jimmy? I know the answer, so Eddie has to play. I know the answer as well, so I can't play. Rock Chalk Jayhawk, Kansas, number one in the country. Number two, the Duke Blue Devils. Purdue, now third in the preseason poll. I shouldn't say now. They start out third in the preseason poll, followed by Michigan State, Marquette, UConn, Houston, Creighton, Tennessee, and Florida Atlantic, your top ten. The shock in all this, I don't know if I'd say shock, but I was surprised. I had to look at it. I'm like, did I miss something? I looked three different times. See if you notice a void. The next 10, Gonzaga, Arizona, Miami, Arkansas, Texas A&M, Kentucky, San Diego State, Texas, North Carolina, and Baylor. And then rounding out the top 25 in the preseason poll, Baylor, Southern California, Villanova, St. Mary's, my guy Randy Bennett, Alabama, and Illinois. The Hoosiers of Indiana snubbed in the preseason top 25. They got a five-star recruit for next year that is recruiting to me is just such a crapshoot. I get it. It beats the alternative. You are excited about having a big name and a guy that theoretically is going to be able to bring other players to Indiana. And you'd rather have that than not. But I always warn with recruiting. There've been plenty of guys. I remember, you know, Hunter Perea was going to be the biggest badass since George McGinnis. Peter Jerkin. I remember when Peter Jerkin and Hunter oh, Perea, <laughs> they found out that Peter Jerkin oh. and Hunter Perea got like bumper stickers, and so they missed eight games. And I remember doing a show live from <laughs> Detour in Carmel, and Indiana was playing, and they showed up on the sidelines, and Vitao's like, oh, it's just a travesty. These kids missing eight games. And all these people were like, it's just ridiculous, too. You're costing them a quarter of their freshman year, and they're, only get, they're all one and done. They're both one and done. Peter Jerkin can't play dead. <laughs> and Hunter Perea was terrible. Terrible! He ended up transferring. Uh, where did they transfer to? Like East. Peter Jerkin ended up in Johnson City. What's that tell you? Build your own joke. <laughs> I think he transferred to ETSU. He Correct. did. He did. He hung around there for a little bit. Yep. They were terrible. Look. Terrible. At the Calvert end of the day. Chaney, nobody had heard of him. AJ Guyton, nobody had heard of him. Doesn't matter at the end of the day what type of stars you get from a recruiting database. It matters how you develop as a player and the coaching it, staff that's around them. It, and it, it Listen, and I do think Woodson can coach. I do too. It's a good it is a good indicator and you would rather err on the side of a highly ranked player. And in today's day maybe it's easier to know how good they are because you've seen them playing in at an AAU level, you know, all over the place. But you know, there were other guys there there was arguably in the night era now there are others that you could say were equivalent but there were not many recruits that Indiana landed in the night era that were ever bigger than Delray Brooks. And it was like, I mean, he's you know he's 37 a game, McDonald's All-American, Mr. Basketball, and he got to IU, and by the midway through his sophomore year, I mean, he ends up leaving because he just he couldn't get to the floor. And then Knight, you know, that was when Knight's like, look, you know, I 
probably should have watched more of the basketball for Northern Indiana. I missed on some guys from Northern Indiana. I saw a lot of guys that came out of areas that were far enough away that they were good high school players, but doesn't mean they were great college players. And then again, like I said, there are other guys that if you look at it, Indiana were not huge national recruits that were great players. You hope it works out for sure. And I, and I'm, I understand Indiana's enthusiasm about getting big players. There's a potential domino effect as well from this well, Boogie Fland who's going to announce his decision on Friday down to Kentucky, Indiana, and Alabama. The thought is that, again, by landing McNeely, correct. it creates that's a, what you another hope, big right? class. And that's right. what happened with Cody Zeller. Yep. But again, getting the guys there, getting the best groceries and preparing the best meal are two different things. Agreed. But you got to at least take step one. Yep. I totally get that. Totally get it. Um you know, a guy that I was thinking about the other day, I remember when Deron Davis, the kid from Colorado, when he announced some guy on Facebook posted a picture of he, you know, some IU grad that lived in Denver dressing up in his candy striped pants with a big flag and he went to the kid's high school and the kid made the announcement at his high school cafeteria and it's literally like 200 high school classmates and some like fat dude in sweatpants like standing in the back waving his flag and it was like dude wouldn't you realize you're a little out of place you got to know your place right yeah never be the oldest guy in the bar and never be the oldest guy in the high school cafeteria that second one's probably even more important than the first self-awareness is key you think uh by the way jmv at twin peaks if you want to get up enjoy ice cold i mean when i say ice cold beer i mean ice cold beer at twin peaks and jmv is going to be there he is there today until 5 30 which point colt's roundtable comes on the air 6 30 pacers and the atlanta hawks right here on the airwaves and then of course uh, tonight's monday night matchup is the dallas cowboys as you just heard talking about in the la Chargers. I need a big night from Justin Herbert tonight. Am I going to get that? You know, I'm down 40 points, and I have Herbert, Keenan Allen, and C.D. Lamb. The other guy has Austin Eckler. Trying to figure out. So hopefully, yes. Hopefully, yes to your question. I was surprised, by the way. Did you see Travis Etienne after his big game last week tweeted out afterwards that he had played himself in fantasy football? I did see that make the rounds. Uh, I'm actually surprised, to be honest with you, that players are like, that they would admit that they play fantasy football because... All it's going to take is one. I mean, guy. with how I mean, treacherous the waters are in general, I know there are two different categories: fantasy sports and sports betting. But there are daily fantasy where you can play for money. So yeah, it's it's a slippery slope. It Ka- is. Yeah, Kai Uzcheck for San Francisco said he tried training for Brandon Ayuk and nobody would let him. <laughs> See, I'm telling you though, it is a slippery slope, right? All right, John's up next. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back at you tomorrow at noon, twelve until three. As a matter of fact, on Quarry and Company here, ninety three five one zero seven five, the fan.